Well, happy Father's Day again. If you would uh, reach for your Bibles and stand with me, we'll have our scripture reading this morning. You turn to the book of Numbers. We'll be reading chapter 11, verses 4 through 34. The book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4 through 34, as Pastor Bruce continues in the summer series on attitude checks. We're going to look at, uh, at our passage this morning from Numbers, chapter 11. If you don't have uh, a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 85, and we'll be reading Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4 through verse 34. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of dellum. The people went about and gathered it ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, every one at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses was also displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? That I conceive all these people, that I beget them, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all the people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you, and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you will have wept in the the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat, and they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and took up the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but those who had not gone out of the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Midad are prophesying in the camp. 
So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to them, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still beneath their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against it, against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague. So he called the name of that place Kilbroth Hadavah, because they were bar- because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your message. And just be with Pastor Bruce as he brings it to us and help us to learn about our attitudes and what attitude we need to check and yield before you and help our hearts and minds to be changed and drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Zach mentioned, we are continuing in our summer worship series. And if you've been with us for the last few Uh, Sundays, we have been in this series uh, that we've been calling Attitude Check, and uh, today the attitude we're going to check is a covetous attitude. You'll notice on the screen a picture that appeared on the front cover of USA Today a few years ago with the headline, In America, You Are What You Own. It's a picture of the Craven family surrounded by all their stuff outside of their home in California. The article that appeared in USA Today uh, starts out with a pop quiz, and and it's this. Ours is a nation steeped in A, laws, B, ideal, C, culture, or D, stuff. And of course, the answer to the pop quiz, the correct answer is D, stuff. The article even goes on to say, and I quote, from Maui to Manhattan, Our capitalist engine has given rise to temples of stuff, unrivaled by previous epochs, resulting in homes that often are shrines to the latest consumer goods. So just how much stuff do we really have? While it's impossible to peek inside every cram closet in every overstuffed garage, I think it's safe to say that we live in a culture today where enough is never enough. Covetousness, that attitude we're going to look at this morning, is something that most of us here probably think that we never struggle with. And yet, covetousness was an attitude that infected the children of Israel like a plague, as we saw in this passage of Scripture that Zach read for us here in Numbers chapter 11. And it's an attitude that continues to infect our lives, all of us here, probably more than we like to admit. And for this reason, we need to stop. We need an attitude check. We need to let God do an attitude check on our hearts and our souls, our lives. In fact, notice coming up in the 
on the screen in your notes here, covetousness is an attitude that blocks the flow of God's fullness and joy in our lives. God wants us to experience a life of joy by finding our satisfaction, our fulfillment in Him instead of in more stuff. This is why God told Moses back in in Exodus chapter 18, 21, when, when he was selecting leaders for the nation of Israel, he told Moses to select from all the people able men, such as feared God, men of truth, and then he adds this qualification to it. Those men hating covetousness. God knows that covetousness is an attitude that will just suck the joy right out of our lives. It will make you feel like you're living in a barren desert. What is covetousness? Since that's the attitude we're going to be talking about this morning, an attitude that we want to replace, we want to put off, it's a wilderness attitude. What is it? Well, let's get on the, on the screen here. It's in your notes. If you want to take notes, you're more than welcome to. Uh, but here's a working definition of covetousness. Covetousness is wanting wrong things, or it may even be wanting right things, but for the wrong reasons, or at the wrong time, or in the wrong amount. Some people struggle with wanting wrong things, but, but uh, I have a, 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 you know, probably most of us here, we struggle more with wanting the right things. That is, they're not necessarily evil things, they're not necessarily sinful things, or bad things, or wrong things, but we struggle with wanting them for the wrong reasons, for perhaps even for at the wrong time, or in the wrong amount. I agree with how one person describes our world. The trouble with this world is that too many people try to go through life with a catcher's mitt on both hands. We struggle with thinking with our hands out, and we struggle with thinking that more money, more this, more that, a new job, a new house, a new relationship, it will make us happy. And in the end, sooner or later, we learn that that is a myth, that is a lie of our culture. In fact, what we're going to see from this passage here in Numbers 11 is that more of anything other than God himself will never bring lasting joy and fulfillment to our lives. Rather, the attitude of covetousness will turn our lives into a desert wilderness experience. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with a play or a drama. Perhaps you've had kids where you've gone to see their play or their drama, and if you have, then you're familiar that a play or a drama consists of different acts, and in between those acts you have intermissions. And that's what we see here in this passage that Zach read for us in Numbers chapter 11. It kind of lays out into three acts with intermissions in between. We're not going to focus on the intermissions. In fact, you may have picked up on to on some of the intermissions where God's dealing with Moses' own attitude. And then he comes back to the main storyline of the act. And then he takes an intermission and he deals with these two guys who are prophesying. You're probably wondering, what was all that about? And then he comes back to the storyline of covetousness again. We're going to focus on three acts, except these are acts of covetousness by the children of Israel. So let's look at the first act. 
Act number one is the sin of covetousness. Notice again what it says in Numbers 11. This time, look at verse 4. We're starting at verse 4 again. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Now the mixed multitude. Some of your Bible translations may use the word uh, rabble. So who is this rabble or this mixed multitude? Well, they were a mixed group of Israelites and, and sort of these the Egyptian tagalongs as they left uh, Egypt. And as you know, Moses led them out of Egypt, out of bondage. They were traveling to the promised land. And some of the Egyptian tag people followed along with them. And so they were a mixed multitude of both Israelites and Egyptians who were constantly kind of stirring up trouble in the camps of of the people here. We would maybe refer to them as the riffraff or the troublemakers. In this mixed multitude, God tells us that they yielded to this intense craving within them. That is, they lusted intensely or they craved a craving. They started looking for something. Something else that would make them happy. And in this case, they craved or they coveted better food than that, what they were currently receiving in the wilderness. Now, I'm sure most of us can relate to this in some fashion or form, such as when we go to the refrigerator, and it, perhaps it's at night, it's already after dinner, maybe 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, you're watching the Royals game, beat the White Sox last night, so you go to the refrigerator, but you're not really all that hungry, but you're not really satisfied either. We're just sort of looking and waiting as we open the door to kind of just grab our attention. Let's see, what do I want? As bad as that can be for our diets, it can be even more devastating if we are doing that with our lives. Sort of surveying the landscape of our options, looking for something that, that might make us happier than we are at that particular moment. Now, we all have desires. It's practically impossible not to have desires. So the question is, when does that desire become a sin? When does a covetous thought or a, a desire become a sin? Well, here's the answer. Notice this in your notes coming on the screen. When we yield to our desires, covetousness becomes active sin. The Bible teaches that even as believers in Jesus Christ, we still have two natures. We we have the old nature and we have the new nature. And our old nature still wants to sin. Our old nature wants to satisfy the flesh, as the Apostle Paul refers to it. But as believers, we now have a new nature in Christ. We are a new creation. And that nature, this new nature in Christ, wants to live righteously. wants to please God with our lives. And, and Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, that these two natures actually battle one another, but eventually one yields. When we obey the covetous dem demands of our old nature and yield, we are moving from an uh, attitude sin to action sin. Look back at verse 4. Notice what it says. It says, Now the mixed multitude who are among them, they yielded. What did they yield to? Well, they yielded to their intense craving of food. Basically, they gave in to their lustful desires or cravings. Paul reminds us 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit. So you're standing in front of the refrigerator again. And you know the last thing you need is that chocolate cake. You see it, you want it, but you decide to shut the door and go back to bed. That's not sin. But let's say you see it, you shut the door, and then you dwell on that chocolate cake. So you go back to the fridge, and this time you look at it again. In fact, you stand there for 30 seconds just kind of staring at it. And then you, pour, pour, you get the jug of milk out, and you pour yourself a glass of milk because you have to have milk with chocolate cake, right? And now you pull the cake out, you set it on the counter, and now you're staring at it again. Do I eat it? Do I not eat it? And you're kind of going back and forth. Listen, you're already gone. It's over. You've, you will give in. That's a covetous attitude that's kind of gone over the edge and ignored all the warning signs. So yielding to covetousness is what God hates. Covetousness becomes sinful when we yield to our fleshly desires. So why do people yield, though, when they don't want to yield? Well, the next principle answers that question for us. When we dwell on our desires, yielding is only a matter of time. We all know that when you dwell on a desire, when you focus on the thing you're wanting, you're walking in a minefield. You're playing with fire. Notice how the Israelites first asked the question in verse 4. They're like, man, who will give us meat to eat? And then they started dwelling on their desires in verse 5. Look at it. It says, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And some of you are like, they desired that? I can't believe that's what they desired. No, but they did. Here they were in the middle of the wilderness where God was feeding them manna. And they began to dwell on what? Oh, the fish. We remember the fish. And the cucumbers, you never saw such cucumbers like this. And, and all the melons so big and juicy and piles of them to pick from. And who can forget the leeks and the onions and the garlics? Do you see how covetousness begins to inflate the desire of sin while it ignores the dangers of sin? When you covet something, you always begin to make it more attractive. And then you begin to make it more accessible than it really is. Because you want it so much. For example, you want a new car. So you convince yourself you can pay for it. You want a piece of chocolate cake. So you promise yourself, I'll diet tomorrow. What are we doing? We're creating rationalizations in order to get the thing that we covet, that we want, that we desire. And the Israelites are doing the same thing here. They not only made the food in Egypt more attractive than what it was, but they made it more accessible than what it really was. The fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic were back in Egypt, all right. Those things were in Egypt, but not for the Israelites. When the Israelites were in Egypt, what was their status? They were slaves who were treated harshly. And so it's highly unlikely, we don't know for sure, but probably so, Highly unlikely that they had access to 
it's unlikely they had access to all those things to eat. But as they dwelt upon the past, as they focused on the past, their memories became radically selective. In that sense, we're kind of just like the children of Israel. It's impossible for us to dwell on a desire for any length of time without rationalizing a way to get it by making whatever it is we want more attractive and more accessible than it really is. When we dwell on our desires, listen, yielding is simply a matter of time. Dwelling on desires is like starting the countdown for the space shuttle. It's just a matter of time until liftoff to a life of desert wilderness. Now, watch this principle work itself out in the children of Israel here. Look at verse 6. They cry out in verse 6, but now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Can you just kind of hear the disgust in their voice here? As they look at what God had provided them to eat, God has provided them manna, and here they are crying out and complaining. Our whole being is dried up, being dried up. Was that reality for them? No way. Man, it sounds like my kids. I'm starving to death. Mom, when are we going to eat? First of all, you're not starving to death. You can wait. And that's, we're no different here. As if to say this manna is lame, God. The same food every day, every week, every month. We're getting sick and tired of this manna, God. Why manna? Where's all the meat? Was the manna really that bad, though? Well, you notice verse 7. It says, now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of bedellum which means the manna was kind of pearl-like in appearance, uh, almost white-like in appearance. In fact, if you go to Psalm chapter 78, verses 24 and 25, it's interesting that manna there is described as the grain of heaven and as the bread of angels. Exodus 16, 4 indicates that the reason God had given the children of Israel and provided the manna to eat on a daily basis because it was a test from God. In other words, God wanted to know if the people would walk in obedience. God wanted to know if they would be thankful for His provision each and every day. Or if they would covet something more or better or different. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to the children of Israel. That's, that's probably why I gravitate to the Old Testament a little bit and just reading. Um, I can identify with the children of Israel. They're a messed up group of people, and I look at my life, and I'm like, man, that's me too. We are so much like them, or at least I know I am. We are so short-sighted sometimes. God promised the children of Israel what? He promised them a land flowing with Milk and honey. Oh man, talk about a promise of food that we would enjoy eating. This was promised to them, and yet, their short-sightedness, they're in a transition between the, the bondage of, of being slaves in Egypt, and they're traveling now to the promised land. They're not there yet, but it's a promise that God has given to them where there will be abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they can't focus on that. Instead, what are they doing? They're always, they're looking back. Looking back what we used to have. And in reality, they probably didn't even have that. 
They're focused on what they don't have, and in the process, they're being discontent with what they do have, with what God has provided for them. But that is what covetousness does. It looks at what we don't have in life, and it makes us discontent with what God has provided for us in life. And so every day, if you can imagine this, here these people are. They went out to gather the manna. And every day, God was inspecting, if you will, their attitudes. Now let me tell you, God was not very pleased with what he saw and what he heard from the people. In fact, the children of Israel, get this, this, is, this fascinates me. The children of Israel began crying over their manna. And when I say crying, it's like a, a child crying because they don't like what's been given to them. They're crying over their manna, even though the manna, it says, tasted like a pastry made with oil. Verse 10 says, Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. Can you imagine that scene? The children of Israel, they are so bent out of shape about the gap between what the Lord was giving them and what they wanted that they're actually lying in their tents and they're crying about it. It's like a five-year-old kid having a temper tantrum because he's not getting what he wants. Talk about losing perspective here. If you were Moses walking throughout the camp, you would have heard the moans and the groans, the snobs and the sniffles from the people. And yet, how many of us, let's be honest here, how many of us, we get so worked up about wanting something that God isn't giving us in the moment? That we weep inwardly in our hearts, and perhaps when nobody's listening, we think, or nobody's around, or even perhaps somebody is, we even cry out outwardly, verbally to God. We're complaining about it. And what was God's response to this, if you can imagine this, a nationwide pity party? Look what it says in verse 10. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Now why would God respond in this manner? Why does God dislike and even hate covetousness so much? Notice this in your notes coming on the screen. At the root of covetousness is a rejection of God's sufficiency for our lives. At the root of covetousness is a rejection of God's provision, his sufficiency for our lives. That's really the bottom line, and it's the reason that God hates covetousness, because in essence, our attitude is telling God, I don't like what you're providing for me. And I'm rejecting, in a sense, your provision and my contentment in your provision at this time in my life. In effect, the Israelites, they were almost, in essence, slapping God in the face and saying, the manna is not enough, God, we want more. Nice try, God, but not enough. Not good enough. I want something better. And you're not meeting my expectations. The question is, for myself and, and for all of us here this morning, will we be grateful? Will we be satisfied with God and His provision for us? Or will we covet more or better 
or different than what God is currently providing us. Our problem so often, though, is not that we don't want God, but rather our problem is we want God and. It's not that we reject God wholeheartedly. It's just, God, I'll take you, but I want some more in addition to that. I want you, God, and. We want God in the perfect spouse. We want God in a bigger house. We want God or in a better job. We want God in just you fill in the blank. And that's the core of our problem so often that we struggle with here. What will it take for us to simply come to that settled place in our lives where we where the central passion of our hearts is, God, I simply just want you. You're enough. All I want is you. I want your joy that you provide. I want your peace. I want your fulfillment. I want your satisfaction that is only found in you and not the things and the stuff and the people of this world. The truth is at the root of my covetous attitude, I am rejecting the sufficiency of God in my life. In effect, we are saying, God, you're not enough for me. You're fine where you fit, but I want more than just you. That's the sin of covetousness. That's what's going on here with the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 11. And this rejection of God's sufficiency is a wilderness attitude that we have to intentionally put off. And listen, we all struggle with this. We're all in the same boat. And so each and every day when we wake up in the morning, this is something we got to deal with with God. God, help me to put off this attitude and to replace it, as we will see in a few weeks here, the attitude of contentment with what you are providing me at this moment in my life. Well, this brings us to act number two, the surprise of covetousness, the surprise. After a few verses of intermission, the curtain rises on act two with God speaking to Moses. Look what it says in verse 18. Drop down to verse 18 in your Bibles, or you can look at it in your notes there. It says, then you shall say to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. Now let me paraphrase what God is saying here. Basically, God is saying, do you want meat? you think meat is better than me? Do you think meat is going to meet your needs? Do you think that's really going to make you happy in life? That's what you've been begging for and crying about? Then, oh, you're going to have meat. And, oh, did God give them meat. Notice what it says in verse 19. God says through Moses, you shall eat. And I love this. This is so, you know, God has a sense of humor here. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you. I don't know about you, but that verse just makes me shudder. Makes me shudder. God was giving the Israelites something bad to teach them something good about himself and his provision. You see, they thought what they were demanding from God was good, but let me tell you, it was going to ruin them. 
what God did here, in fact, was so significant. What we're reading right here in these verses, it was so significant in the history of the children of Israel that it was still being talked about several hundred years later after the fact. All you got to do is go to Psalm 106, verse 15, and it says this about God's action referring to this here in Numbers 11. It says, he gave, that is God, he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. Whoa. Whoa. Two principles. In giving them what they had to have, God withdrew himself, and he sent them into the wilderness. And two principles flow out of this. From the surprise of covetousness, the first one is, with God, we can be satisfied with very little, but without God, all that we have will be disappointing. The children of Israel had all the meat they could eat. They could get fat physically from all the meat that they had to eat if they wanted. But spiritually, listen to me, spiritually they were starving to death. I wonder what thing in our own lives here this morning might parallel the meat the children of Israel had to have. Something you're coveting or craving, something you're putting your life on hold for, something you're continually begging God. Understand, nothing in life is essential except God. Things or people were never designed to take God's place. And when we covet something or someone and make it essential and then beg God to give it to us, we are in essence asking God to replace Himself with something or someone that we consider more important than Him. And when we do this, God will allow us to experience firsthand the consequences of substituting anything for Him. Covetousness, folks, listen to me. It is such a cruel, cruel enemy. It is a tool of Satan himself. Covetousness promises you happiness and prosperity, but in the end, it only brings painful poverty to our souls. The second principle is beware of begging God for non-essentials. Because in time, We may hate what we had to have. God told the Israelites, you want meat? Then you'll get meat. And you'll eat it not one day, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you hate it. No doubt about it. God was pretty ticked off at their arrogant rejection of his provision and his goodness in the supply of manna. But they, because they thought meat could satisfy them in a way that God could not, God gave them so much meat that they choked on it, literally. Listen, man, I'm still learning these truths in my own life. If only we would understand that God doesn't want anything substituted for him in our lives. That is a lifelong lesson we learn. God doesn't want anything substituted for Him in our lives. Be warned. Covetousness will take you to the place in life where you hate the very thing that you wanted so bad. That you just thought you had to have. God says, do you think, do you really think that's better than me? That thing or that person? Then go ahead and have it. 
And that's when we'll experience firsthand what it says in Psalm 116, verse 15, He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And that's when our lives will become like a desert wilderness. Numbers 11, verses 21 through 30, records another intermission where Moses has to deal with his own attitude. But in verse 31, we come back to the issue of covetousness and with it, Act 3. Act 3 is the consequences of covetousness. God brought them the meat they were convinced they had to have. Now watch the consequences of it. Look what it says in verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. How many have eaten quail before? Anybody eaten quail? All right, several of you have. Good. Quail are, man, you know, if you've eaten quail, you know that quail are these, the tasty, tender little birds. They're actually pretty good eating. And two cubics are the equivalent to about three feet. And so God is basically saying this, you want meat? Okay, you can have meat. And I, in fact, God says, you want meat that bad? I'm going to make it easy for you to have all the meat you can handle. You can have as much quail as you want. In fact, it'll be so easy for you to catch all the quail you want. And so according to verse 32, check this out. It says, and the people stayed up all that day and all that night and all the next day even. And what were they doing for those 36 hours? And gathered the quail. And it says, he who gathered the least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. In other words, just imagine this with me. You've got to put yourself in the story now. All right? Just imagine this. The people are going nuts. They could journey basically a day outside of the camp this way, a day outside of the camp that way, and collect birds everywhere. In fact, they spent 36 hours gathering birds three feet deep. How many birds could you get? Well, the person who gathered the least, it says gathered ten homers. And we all know how much that is, right? Yeah, ten homers. Yeah, what's that mean? Well, ten homers, that's, that's 60 bushels of birds. And of course, only a handful of us know what 60 bushels is, so let me even break that down for us. 60 bushels of bird is enough to fill two 55-gallon drums. Just imagine the chaos of two million people gathering 60 bushels of birds three feet deep. Now imagine the work of cleaning all those birds. Think of all the feathers, and by the time you get all the feathers off, let me tell you, there's not a lot there. They faced a lot of work for a little bit of meat. And then to think there was no refrigeration of any kind. Imagine the smells on the second day of processing. So what should we take away from this? What do we learn from this? What do we learn from all these birds? I've often wondered if Alfred Hitchcock got his, his idea for his movie, The Birds, from this passage right here. Two principles we should take away from the consequences of covetousness. Number one is covetousness distorts our thinking to the point where enough is never enough. 
In other words, check this out. Covetousness distorts our capacity to discern sufficiency or when enough is enough. The children of Israel didn't know when to stop gathering quail. Think about that for a moment. They didn't know when to stop. It's, it's like when you go to the movie theaters, and how many of you buy the all-you-can-eat popcorn? All-you-can-eat drink? You go to the theater and get the all-you-can, and so you, you, know, you like gobble it all down the first time. This is before the movie starts. <laughs> and you're like, well, i got to get my money's worth. So then you have your kid run back and get some more. You fill that up, and you just sit there. And before long, you're like, man, that's gone again. Jack, go get some more. And you just, you don't, you, you, you don't even know when to stop. And before long, man, I've eaten four bowls of popcorn here. I, that's not reality here. I'm not. Yeah, it is. I got to fess up. But listen, the children, they didn't know when to stop gathering quail. Their thinking is so distorted by this point that they didn't know when enough was enough for their family. So they spent 36 hours nonstop gathering 60 bushels of birds, which was way more than any one family could even clean and eat. Covetousness distorts what we think is enough in life. Number two, covetousness destroys our joy, and it makes life feel like a barren desert. Don't miss what it says in verse 33. It says, But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So while the meat was still between their teeth, they are chewing it. And before they could even swallow it, God's wrath was aroused and it came upon them with a very great plague. Listen, the end result of covetousness is that it destroys our joy and ultimately, get this, it will destroy our lives. Just like the children of Israel. If we choose a covetous attitude, we will spend our lives in the desert wilderness. A place of heartache, a place of grief, a place of misery. And then... We come to, in my opinion, what is the most saddest, most saddest, that's not even proper grammar, one of the saddest, one of the most sobering verses in commentary on the children of Israel in verse 34. Look what it says. So he called, that is Moses, called the name of that place Kilbroth Hadavah, because they were buried, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Now, get, just guess with me what that name, Kilbroth Hadavah, means. There's a reason Moses named that place this particular name. That name consists of two Hebrew words that literally means graves of craving. What a sad word picture on those people who yielded to their craving. Their own graves are a sad testimony to their covetous attitude. And so as we close, let me just throw out a question for us to think about when it comes to replacing a covetous attitude. Will a grave of craving be waiting for you because of a covetous attitude? I can't help but think of a story that one well-known pastor 
many years ago told. His name was George W. Truett. And this pastor was invited to dinner in the home of a very wealthy man in Texas. And after the meal, the host led him to a place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area of this man's home. And so pointing to the oil wells punctuating the landscape, he boasted to George W. Truett, 25 years ago I had nothing, and now, as far as the eye can see, it's all mine. And looking in the opposite direction, at his sprawling fields of grain, he said, that's all mine. And then turning east toward herds of cattle, he bragged, they're all mine. And then pointing to the west and to the beautiful forest there in the west, he said, that too is all mine. And then he paused, expecting Dr. Truett to just compliment him on his great success in life, in all his accomplishments. But Dr. Truett, however, placing one hand on the man's shoulder and then pointing heavenward with the other hand simply said, how much do you have in that direction? How much do you have in that direction? And the man hung his head and he simply confessed, I've never thought about that. Folks, listen to me. I urge you to think long and hard about the direction of your life and what you're pursuing in your life. True joy is found when we are satisfied in our relationship with the Lord and nothing else. Listen, if you, if you want to experience joy in your life, then I encourage you to put off a covetous attitude and begin pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then you will know that expression in God's Word, the joy of the Lord. Do you know the joy of the Lord? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord? And the provision that is found in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, that's where true satisfaction is found. With your heads bowed. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the truth of Your Word. And may we not turn away from the example of the Israelites, but may we learn from them. Forgive us for wanting things other than You. Forgive us for longing for the stuff of this world and for believing that I can be satisfied in this life apart from You. Lord, teach us what it means to love You above all else. May You alone become all to us and other things find their rightful place. Thank You for Your grace and Your goodness in the giving of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness that is found in Him. And in His name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing a chorus. And as they do, will you respond? Perhaps this is an attitude you've been struggling with. Let me encourage you to run to the Father, run to the cross, and seek His forgiveness. Ask Him to replace this attitude of covetousness and to find satisfaction in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ.